Acts 11, at the end, 19 through 30, just a few verses, not very much to it, at least as far as character count goes. Um, Before we get into that, though, let's review what we did last time, which was maybe three weeks now, three weeks, three or four weeks since we've been in Acts. Um, first thing we, re- we recall about Acts uh, 9 through 9, uh, 32, I think it was, through eleven eighteen, was that was about Peter's adherence to Halakha. And we just had a, a teaching not recently about Halakha. So I think we know what that is now. Peter is, is willing to set aside Halakha for his Jewish brethren who are in need, but is firm in the Halakha about interacting with Gentiles, something that God wants him to stop doing, right? Um, he, he was following Halakha at the potential expense of people. That's not something we should do. If, if, we're, if we start doing that, if we start doing traditions that keep us from uh, being light and serving others, then, then we're doing it wrong. Um, doing God's will is never done at the expense of people because God's will is for his people. Um, so the doing of it should never be something that, uh, that, that costs lives. And then, of course, we were reminded of the, te- of the, the, the master's teaching of uh, not to teach as commands the traditions of men. There are commands and there are traditions about how to do those commands. And other traditions as well, but never teach traditions as commands. I think we probably all come, some of us come from backgrounds that that was maybe the case, where traditions, customs were, uh, uh, there was a hard line, like you, you do this and that equals salvation, or you do this and, and you're part of the church or whatever. Um, so we, we know what that tastes like when we do it wrong. Being about doing God's will. That's what God was trying to, to communicate to the disciples here. Uh, Yeshua, while physically present, gave us a, a rubric or a lens for discerning halakha, right? Uh, it was a brief insight to the way in which everything is arranged. That is, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, right? All of the, all the commands all along the prophets, hang on these two. That is the lens through which we can view all of this. And it's why we must follow Yeshua. We must follow him and his understanding of the commands, the parts of Scripture that we wrestle with. We must look at it through his lens. And he was here to give us a glimpse, an insight as as to how to arrange this, what angle, what frame to put around all these. And of course, never be so attached to our halakha that we cannot change our own understanding about God's will and then be the ones to carry it out. The vision of the sheet, right? The vision of the sheet, of course, is not about food. It is about people. And this is an example of where Scripture explains itself, right? Verse 10, 28, so the vision of the sheet comes down. Peter looks at it. Um, and after, after the, the vision is gone, Peter is confused. He's perplexed. He doesn't quite know what it is, 
what it's about. But he knows it's not about food because God does not, God is consistent. Um, and so he would not contradict himself. And so eventually in 10 verse 28, the answer is, you yourselves know, he's talking to Cornelius and the people present, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. This is halakha. This is a tradition. This is not a command. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So here's the lesson of the vision of the sheep, that it was about people. And then finally, we talked a little about the unintended consequences of our specific halakhic rulings. I could probably pull the audience here and say, raise your hand and tell me of a, a particular tradition um, that you, that you, whether it's part of a, a church body or a religious experience or even in a home or work where a certain law or rule has come into play that had unintended consequences. The, the spirit was there of help and an aid of welfare, but in the actual practice and implementation of a rule or a law, it just was disaster. Can any of you think of something? You don't have to share it, but raise your hand if you can think of, of an example of that. Okay, I see a couple of hands. I have, I've got an example here. This is New York City. And this is not a, I'm not making any political statement here at all. But I want to share with you something uh, that, that demonstrates the unintended consequences of... Uh, of good intended rulings. Um, the U.S. Constitution says this, the Congress shall have power to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. General welfare. So there is, from the U.S. Constitution, there is a statement, shall provide for the general welfare. Not much more specific than that. In New York State, their constitution uh, was, I believe the constitution was ratified in the 30s, the 1930s, or at least many, many amendments and changes to the New York State constitution happened in the 1930s. And there was a, a law in the, uh, I think it was the housing, Article 13 uh, under housing, that says this. The aid, care, and support of the needy are public concerns and shall be provided by the state and by such of its subdivisions and in such manner and by such means as the legislature may from time to time determine. Again, fairly general. Maybe a little more specific than just provide for the general welfare of the United States. The aid, care, and support of the needy are public concerns and shall be provided by the state. All right, so we, we, can, we can have a discussion about what that means, what that looks like, right? Well, in 1979, the court case Callahan versus Carey argued that a right to shelter for the homeless existed under the New York State Constitution. That lawsuit led to a 1981 consent decree. The consent decree required, required that the city and state provide temporary emergency shelter to anyone who meets the need standard to quality for the home relief program established, established in New York State or, or by reason to 
physical, mental, or social dysfunction is in need of temporary shelter. The right to shelter then was extended to homeless women beyond that uh, by Eldridge versus Koch in 1983 and to homeless families with children by McCain versus Koch in 1983, according to the Coalition for the Homeless. Okay, so we started off with something broad and general, the general welfare. Provide for the general welfare. New York State Constitution said something a little more specific. The aid, care, and support of the needy are public concerns and shall be provided by the state and by such of its subdivisions, etc. Then some court rulings determined that, that those in need had a right to shelter. Something is going on right now in New York City that is an unintended consequence of that. What is it? What was that? The migrant crisis. Well, guess what? Eric Adams, or Adams or Abrams? Adams. Adams. The mayor is powerless. He cannot send people away. He is required by law to provide housing. His hands are tied. And what is happening to New York City is that hotels lots of places that had very different functions before are now being flooded with people who are coming because they know, oh, hey, if we make it all the way to New York City, they have to put us up. They have to give us a house, right? So the the Constitution, the New York State Constitution uh, uh, amendment in the 30s was really for the benefit of the citizens of New York. It was for the homeless and needy of New York. But because of certain halakhic rulings, you could call it, it expanded, it was more specific, and this, while it is giving respite and care to people who need it, who are not from New York City at all, or even New York, or maybe not even from the United States of America, it is causing some damage to the people who live there. You understand? So that's just a a contemporary example of of how how this occurs. In the early first century, under the leadership of Hillel and Shammai, the Sanhedrin introduced a controversial piece of legislation called the 18 Measures, primarily because Gentiles were idolaters in general. The assumption was Gentile, paid a broad brush, Gentiles are idolaters. So here are these 18 measures. The 18 measures declared Gentiles ritually unclean and their food ritually contaminated by idols. This is the law that Peter was referring to when he said, you know it's unlawful for me to be here. He wasn't talking about Torah. He wasn't talking about commands found in the Bible. He was talking about these halakhic rulings by the Sanhedrin. But what about if not all Gentiles are idolaters? But what about the exceptions, right? So there were some exceptions, but in general it was believed that Gentiles were idolaters. Okay. All right, so now let's open our Bibles to Acts 11, if you brought your Bible. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I'm not calling tradition halakha, but 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 there is commands, and there's halakha and tradition. 
I'm lumping those two, I guess I would be lumping those two together as a category outside of commands. Is that? Okay, yeah. Could you can you elaborate a little more as to how you how you have that distinction too? Because I I mean I I'm yes yes I agree with that, and 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 I apologize if I'm making a false equivalency there, but there is that distinction for sure. Okay, Acts eleven verse. 19. I'm just going to go ahead and read through these 11 verses, and then we'll go back through and see what we find there. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and speaking to the, Gen- to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the, the assembly at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when, we, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, Barnabas, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the assembly and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christianoi. In Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit, there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Okay, so I've titled this The Antioch Problem and Saul's Gospel. There is something is coming to a head here um, that needs to be addressed, that has been hinted at with the vision and commission God has given to Saul and to the teaching, or the vision that God has given to Peter, um, and, and some of these interactions with Gentiles, right? But something needs something needs to break. Something needs to happen here, and this is kind of a kind of a boiling point, if you will. Not not a boiling point in the negative sense, but it's just like here we've reached we've reached a point where where something needs to be done. In in verse nineteen, we see that they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch was established at a time when. Jews were granted civil rights equal to those for the, the equal to those for the Macedonian and Greek citizens inhabitants. These uh, Greek-speaking cities, Cyprus was on an island. Uh, Akko, Tyre, Sidon, Antioch, Phoenicia had Phoenicia was an area that included three cities of Akko, Tyre, and Sidon, and Antioch. Uh, there was 
a Gentile-Jewish contrast there, especially in Antioch, because of the rights and privileges afforded to the Jewish people. The Gentile citizens of Antioch participated in the Greco-Roman cults wholeheartedly. So they were out in the open about how they were pagan. And the Jewish community, who had basically freedom of religion, something that the Gentiles did not have, were also not hiding who and what they were. The Gentile citizens, in general, resented the Jewish communities there for that privilege. And there was a rivalry there. For the Gentiles, if they did not participate in these cult practices, there were punishments. So they didn't, that was, that was a sticking point. It's like, if I don't do this, I get in trouble. But there's this people over here who are not doing that at all, and they're special, and they get afforded some certain privileges. So there was some animosity pointed at the, at the, at the Jewish people. At the same time, though, Jewish practice and following Torah and being God's people was like an oasis of light and sanity amidst more open occult practices. Okay, so keep that that in mind. At the end of the verse here, we see that they were speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. We're seeing that there's still a disconnect. The Gentiles are still considered by Yeshua's disciples, as not of great concern right now. Why would Gentiles want to be part of us? Like, why would they want to do that? And few cases were happening where Jews or where Gentiles were coming to faith in Messiah, were coming and converting to Judaism, but not enough to make them really pay attention. And they were being converted to Judaism, which was a process, right? So if there weren't a whole lot, and they had to go through a process, it was manageable, and still not enough to make a big difference, so why even focus on it right now? Moving on to verse 11, or verse 20. Uh, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. These were unnamed Greek-speaking disciples who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also. As Gentiles... There were Gentiles on the periphery of this. They were, they were around. They were paying attention. Again, this, this curious people doing these curious things had an appeal to the Gentile population, even the occult practicing peoples, because we, we, we're, we're made in the image of God. And there are things that we may do that are part of the crowd that just won't feel right, even though we have to do them by law in this scenario. And so they'll see this and they'll be attracted to it. So this is the first time actually where Yeshua's disciples had been proactive in reaching the Gentiles. This right here, the first time. Up until this point, any Gentile interaction with the Jewish people, uh, the disciples of Yeshua, was God sending them. There was something about God intervening and making something making this happen. But this is the first time where we see actual Yeshua followers, disciples reaching out and include, including and letting hear this message. So here is the problem. <clears throat> what do we do with the Gentiles? They had concluded, that the, the disciples and the apostles, they concluded that the Gentiles had been granted the repentance that leads to life. This is in verse 18, just before our passage today. 
When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, welp, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So they had just come to this conclusion. They all agreed upon it. But they hadn't had time to, to figure out what to do with them. And there's a lot of them. Too many Gentiles were coming to faith in Yeshua at once. And they couldn't absorb them fast enough into the Jewish community through conversion. It was creating a backlog. Now, because the the belief was still that in order to become a part of the kingdom, you had to convert to Judaism, which honestly is a reasonable, logical thing to assume. If you're a disciple of Yeshua, you're thinking, well, he's a Jewish king. Um, this is the this is the kingdom. This is the chosen people. If you want to do this, okay, well, okay, well, then we'll just convert you to Judaism. And there was a process for that. It took time and effort and required credentialed and credible people to help bring this about. But over the over the generations, there wasn't an influx of people who were wanting to do this. So they weren't they didn't have the infrastructure prepared to make this happen in a smooth way. Because they were still thinking, oh, it's uh, if they want to come to faith in Yeshua, then, then they gotta become Jewish, uh, etc. So there was this piece right here that was still needing to be dealt with, and that's what the problem was. In verse 22, then, we see the news about them reached the ears of the assembly at Jerusalem. So there was, it was newsworthy that there were these people, a large number who believed turned to Messiah, a great many, a great multitude. News reached Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas. So like, okay, who can we send? Okay, Barnabas is from Cyprus, so he probably knows, he may know some of the Cyprus men who were in this initial evangelistic uh, group of people. He speaks Greek, uh, so let's go ahead and send him. So they send Barnabas to Antioch to, to investigate the claims, much like Peter and John did for Samaria, right? So things happen in an area, news gets back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the leadership there, they dispatch someone to go and investigate to see what's going on. That's what this was, it was Barnabas this time. Verse 23, then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Messiah. So I can imagine Barnabas showing up and seeing all the people, his eyes getting big, and him realizing, I I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to praise God. (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. Good job, everybody. All right, the grace of God is good. Look at this. And he's like, uh, what, uh, what do I do? What do I do? Uh, I don't know. He's like, well, so what does he do? Um, he decides, oh, I'm going to go get the big guns. We need help with this, and I know, who, I know who to call. The people who are here, remember the people there, the Gentiles there, they were under law required to practice these pagan occult uh, religions. This, this, it was the law. The Jewish people had freedom of religion, and so they were not in danger of doing what it is they did. But Gentiles, there's the pagan Gentiles who are under the law, the Jews who have religious exemption, 
they can basically coexist and do their thing. But there's this in-between group of people coming from pagan, the pagan culture to faith in Yeshua who are actually in danger. They're, they're in danger of something. And so Barnabas is seeing this. And if they weren't in danger, there, there, there may have been more of a, oh, we got this, we'll take some time, and we'll get everybody converted, and it'll be fine. But again, this is a, the conversion process takes, takes a long, long time and effort to bring about. There's circumcision, immersion, sacrifice, among other things. So it's, at a, it's like a crisis. We, we have this group of people who is willing to give up and put themselves outside the law to come to this, what do we do? And, and how do we do it quickly? So, verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, I like to, I, I think in pictures, and I also, I also kind of think in movies, scenes too. So, I'm a product of my, my generation um, I can imagine Saul, who, what's, what's Saul been doing in Tarsus, and how long has he been there? Anybody know? How long has he been there at this point? How many years? Ten years. He'd been in, in, in Tarsus for ten years. A man who God gave a commission to has been in Tarsus for ten years, not yet fulfilling that commission. And what's he been doing while he's been in Tarsus? Aside from some, some teaching, uh, he probably got flogged a little bit too. Maybe a couple of times he was flogged happened there because he was still trying to figure out what this whole commission was, what God meant by, by reaching out to the Gentiles. Um, but he was wrapping his head around this commission. He was, he was searching the scripture, trying to figure out what is this about, and it was taking him a while. So I can picture him in his home, sitting there, you know, going through uh, passage passages from Isaiah uh, or, or wherever, looking at it like, okay, is this is this where God is talking about how it'll be to the nations too? And then he, he someone bursts in the door and it's Barnabas and he looks at Saul and he says, "Pack your bags, it's time." <laughs> right? And Saul gets it and he's like, "Let's go," you know. And then a, a montage ensues of him getting his stuff ready, throwing his Bible, and no, no, it's Torah scroll, and, the, and you know, getting everything ready and getting on a, on a, a horse, and then it's a slow uh, trot <laughs> down to Antioch. So I, imagine, I, I like to think that that's what's happening, but this is the time. It's like, okay, Saul, you have figured it out. And then Barnabas shows up and says, all right, we need you. Now's the time. It's like, ah, okay, here, here's where the rubber meets the road. So Barnabas, um, for his part, he, he's the one who vouched for Saul to the apostles when Saul first came to Jerusalem, right? So Barnabas has a, uh, it, it, it's no coincidence that Barnabas would think of Saul. Barnabas may have known about the vision of the sheet uh, that Peter had and that he may have shared that with Saul on the drive, on the drive, on the ride down, um, filling him in about what's going, been going on while you've been away for 10 years. Barnabas may have been one to get Saul out to Tarsus in the first place, so he, he knew he was there, though he still had to go look around for him. 
Saul, again, Saul was Greek-speaking and highly credentialed, so that, was, that made sense to Barnabas too. We have these Greek-speaking Antioch Gentiles. Um, they hadn't seen each other in 10 years, so they had a lot of catching up to do otherwise. And again, on the way down, they were, Barnabas was filling him in, and I, I can imagine Saul, who may or may not have heard word of things that were happening in Jerusalem and Antioch and in Judea and Samaria, I can imagine him, like, connections being made, like, on this way down. Like, okay, like, oh, oh, right, and I've been reading this, and, like, oh, okay, this is, ah, it's all coming together. It's all coming together. One of the things he probably read to figure out what was going on was something that we read out loud on Shabbat when we pray. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This would have been one of the many passages and the prophets and the writings that Saul was praying over and just immersing himself in so that he he could fully own and know what his commission was, what the mystery was, right? And he came to his conclusion how, how soon, how, how close to when Barnabas came, who knows? But in the movie version, I'm sure it was that day, he'd come to the conclusion, and what was that conclusion? That conclusion was how the mystery was made known to be by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Messiah, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Yeshua through the gospel. Was it the same day? I don't know. But I, I like to think he's, he's like, ah, I got it. Boom, door opens. Barnabas, he hasn't seen him in 10 years. Pack your bags. Let's go. And it's, you know, Chaos. He's trying to grab everything he needs for this trip. It's like, it's on, right? Let's go. And let's go and bring in the Gentiles. And when they get there, what happens? They spend an entire year, a whole year, meeting with the assembly and teaching considerable numbers, like significant numbers. There isn't a number assigned. A lot of times scripture will say, you know, 5,000, 3,000, right? It was significant. Let's just say that. And let's recall again what we know about Paul, or Paul, Saul, that, we t- that we've uh, gone over before, that he was a specific instrument from chapter 9, verse 15, for a specific commission that he'll, he'll describe in chapter 22, verse 21. Saul is a bit of an in-betweener too. We talked about those in-between people, people who are coming out of something to go into something. He's a bit of an outsider too, an in-betweener. He was outside and in between the uh, 
the Pharisees and Sadducees. He did something that, that, that riled one of the groups up, I'm sure. Um, he is for the Gentiles, but he is a rock star Jewish scholar and sage, right? So he's, he's perfectly positioned for this. God needed a kind of outsider Jewish prodigy to reach the Gentiles with the good news about the Jewish Messiah. And he had to come to this revelation directly from God, not from men, for it to really be an unquenchable fire within him. <clears throat> Later on, Paul describes this as, man, as my gospel. Remember, we talked about that difference between what is man's gospel? Does anyone know what, what is man's gospel? What's the, the, the general definition I gave for that? Man's gospel is anything a man or woman could say to a non-believer about Yeshua's deeds, words, death, resurrection, ascension, messianic claims, and eventual return. So, my gospel, my good news to you is me telling you about Yeshua from, from what I know, my experience. That is man's gospel. So it's not necessarily a false gospel. It is just the way in which I process it, the things that are important to me about Yeshua that should be true, but how I tell the story to you, how I how I convey the good news is my gospel. That is man's gospel. Paul said he did not hear from man, man's gospel, but he heard directly from the Lord. His gospel was direct revelation from Yeshua. Now to the one who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Yeshua the Messiah, according to the revelation of the mystery the mystery, of course, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, which has been kept secret for long ages, but now is revealed, and through the writings of the prophets has been made known to all the nations, according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Yeshua the Messiah, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Moving on. Still in verse 26, we see here that they are first called Christianoi in Antioch. This designation uh, was likely not created by the Messianic community. They didn't start calling themselves this, but was placed on them by the broader Jewish community. This was a common practice. Think of it as like a nickname that you give to those you love, those who are part of your family. It denoted basically a subset within the Jewish community. And we have other examples of this. It did not represent here, this did not represent a break from Judaism or from the broader Jewish community as a separate religion of Christianity. And that it wouldn't develop for some time, Christianity as we know it. So this was basically just, ah, well, what do we got? We've got to call them something because they have something different about them. Christianoi or Messianics, or the, uh, the, the Meshichim. Other nicknames they'd had um, were what? What are some of the other names they've had? We've already seen one in Acts. The Way, what else? The Saints, the, the Poor Ones, the Sect of the Nazarenes. What's that? 
Similar to how we see different synagogues. We have the synagogue of the freedmen, the synagogue of the Hellenists, the synagogue of the Hebrews, the synagogue of this, that, and the other, right? So there were just ways in which to associate certain groups, subsets within the community. That's what was happening here. And it's likely that in Antioch, there may have been a synagogue of the Messianics, a synagogue of those who were followers of Yeshua, which wasn't the norm, which wasn't necessarily what had been happening previously, as we knew in, in, earlier in Acts. All the, the, the believers, the disciples, would come to the temple to pray, but then in their synagogues, they would go into all the different synagogues. The, the Greek speakers would go to the synagogue of the freedmen, and the other disciples would go to their other synagogues as well. So they didn't have a new synagogue. But here in Antioch, they may have had one, but that wasn't, that wasn't the goal. The point wasn't to have something so separate and so distinct and so different. <clears throat> Verse 27, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This was, a, this was a big deal, what was happening. Lots of people, lots of Gentiles coming to faith in Yeshua, putting themselves, putting targets on their backs from their own community, their, their, their pagan community, to come and do this thing. This was a big deal. And so some prophets came down, like, we got to see this, right? This was the beginning of something significant, and the Messianics in Antioch were thrilled to welcome such prestigious men. Raise your hand if you've been a part of some kind of like revival before or some big worship event or, or whatever, right? I'm, I have, and I'm, I'm sure you have. Like, and, and, and guest speakers come, and it's, like, it's a big deal, right? This, I think that was kind of what the feel was here. There was something new going on, something exciting, something that, we, that not everyone had specific answers to. They had to bring Saul in, who I imagine at this time became legendary among the people, even though he'd been away, or maybe especially because he'd been away so long. Like, what happened to Saul? You know, I don't know, but did you hear about the time he, oh, it was so awesome. And then he shows up too with Barnabas. These prophets come. This is a big deal what's going on here. And then one of them, in verses 28 and through the end here, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius, uh, which during that time, this famine was uh, in, in certain cities. It wasn't a, a region-wide, but there were some, some very specific cities who were dealing with this one, of which was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to have this problem. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This, the end here is, I believe, a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture. This burgeoning, budding, messianic community of believers, both Jew and Gentile, would help to feed Jerusalem. Isn't that something? Thinking back to in the past when, when I've been a part of big worship events and then there was a need and then God, God delivered in a big way, right? 
just a contribution for, for such and such. And then an outpouring would happen that was just immense and, and unexpected. God is taking advantage of this. He knows this is coming. He sends prophets who reveal to these people who are, who are excited and who are now a part of something bigger than themselves. The first thing that this community needs to do is address a need. What else could bond people together, could help to solidify this relationship better than a need that's coming or a need that's here? This is a short passage here. The shortness betrays the immensity, I think, of what's going on at this point in Antioch's history and the history of the Messianic community of the first century. So, some some food for thought, and I'll, I'll close with this. And this, this ties into stuff that Grant had shared during our prayer time, and what we know about this time of year, of it being just darker. And this time in our spirit, in the spiritual season of darkness, that precedes the light, we start to see when. What's the next holiday coming up? Hanukkah. This is pointing to that. This is preceding that. This darkness. While we might easily fall into a kind of discouragement or anguish about the present state of our American culture or any other societal culture. Antioch represents here, I believe, a type of what can happen when the contrast between light and dark is on full display. Okay? When the unrighteous don't hide their ways, and the righteous don't hide theirs either. Antioch, pagan Gentiles, wholeheartedly doing their thing. The Jewish people who had religious freedom, wholeheartedly doing their thing. Because of the set of circumstances in Antioch, including the rights afforded to the Jewish community there, this climax of contrasts occurs letting the light shine brighter and exposing evil so that the many searching individuals, the genuine, humble, earnestly seeking people will see the truth and be drawn out of the darkness to it. This feels like what's going on in our our specific cultural context right now. Grant, you mentioned that even though this darkness has happened in Israel, it is waking people up, secular Jews coming to faith. There is, there is good things God can do in dark times and in dark places so long as his people shine their light and are not afraid to do so. 
Amen? Yeah. That's what we see happening here. And it's, it, is, it is relevant. It is relevant to where we are in human history, in our cultural context here in America, and in many places, certainly in Israel, absolutely in Israel, just this, the blatant, outright showing of horrible, monstrous brutality on the one hand, the dark, dark, darkest. It's like, okay, reason, reasonable, humble, thinking people will be able to go, oh, wait a minute. That's the direction I've been moving? Uh, what about this over here? <laughs> Maybe I should reconsider this. This people who is about life and not about death. I've heard story after story of people, celebrities even, who are just like, you know what? It, it, it happened during the pandemic. I started to think, you know, maybe I've made a mistake and have reconsidered some things. One, one person in particular who is maybe like a B or C list celebrity by the name of Kat Von D. Raise your hand if you know who Kat Von D is. A few, yeah. Kat Von D, a tattoo artist. She, she, she came to fame on the shows Miami Inc. and LA Inc. Tattoo artist. Allegedly involved in witchcraft and the occult and all black and just looks like just evil, right? Well, during the pandemic, her and her husband, who who is also an artist and musician, she's an artist and musician too, they were in lockdown and they had to face each other. And her husband said to her, you know, honey, I think we've got this wrong. It took darkness, an increase of darkness, in order for the light within people to start to shine a little brighter, for eyes to be open to see the truth, to see the falsehood of the ways in which they've been going, to make them reconsider. So that's, what, that's what's going on. Make no mistake. That is the reality. That's what's going on. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, it begs the question, was... Adonai giving Saul the time he needed. Was God, was, yeah, yeah. So if, if, if the disciples of Yeshua, who were in his presence at one point, if they can be dragging their feet about reaching the Gentiles, about reaching the people who are in darkness, how much better are we doing? <laughs> Hanukkah's coming. Light. Dedication is coming. Cleansing the temple. Cleansing your temple. Letting it be a place of light out that goes out. It's coming. And like I prayed last week, I prayed to God, God, we're ready. Send us people. Let's let our temples, at least our temples, be a place of welcome, love, peace for people who, going through these dark times, who don't have Messiah, 
are having a much worse time than we are. Let us be that for them. And if we can, our homes, our houses, our apartments, our dorm rooms, whatever it is, if we can, use those too so we can help change lives. Okay? This is a good, this is a good passage. So when the fever pitch comes, guard yourselves, of course, but also let's sit back and watch as eyes are opened and people come. So don't just be in despair. Don't be discouraged so much. Don't be in anguish about the darkness, about how I can't take my kids here. I can't do Like, okay, that may be true. There may be some decisions you have to make about your life and how you how you operate, where you go. But there is a work being done in people right now. God is preparing them, and he's preparing us, and we need to be ready. We can't be dragging our feet for 10 years. <laughs> when we have, we have the commission. So, Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the examples you've given us and provided to us in written form and how these messages and teachings have been conveyed across the centuries. Thank you for preserving them and for preserving us so that we can come together as a body and hold on, latch on to our Messiah Know the law, your instruction. For we were made for such a time as this. We are here to love you and to love others. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with wisdom, with faithfulness with the ability to live out the things we need to live out for your sake and for your glory. And be with us this Shabbat as we rest, as we refuel, as we connect and reconnect and build on the unity and oneness you started so long ago so that you can look down at your children and be happy at how well we get along. We thank you and praise you. We ask and pray all this in the name of Yeshua, our Mashiach, our Master and Savior. Amen.